Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mom Podcast. This week I'm joined by Chef Carrie Young. She's the owner founder of Carrie Young Cooks, which is a private chef business that she started a few years ago. And I first learned about Carrie and her business really through Instagram. It came up on one of those kind of recommended accounts that you should follow things. When you follow a couple accounts, you get those kind of bubbles at the bottom. And she was one of them. And I've been kind of following her ever since. You know, all I follow really is restaurants and food accounts and chefs and maybe a couple of meme accounts and that's about it on Instagram. So, but yeah, I've been following her ever since and she makes fantastic looking food. I have had the pleasure of having some of her cuisine when she was working at Chapman's Eat Market in the kitchen there. And she gets into, you know, her entire career, how she first got into cooking, you know, what she was doing before then, where she thought she was going to go. You know, she lived in a couple different states too as well. We talk about that and how she wound up back in Columbus and how she kind of got to the point where she felt comfortable launching her own private chef business as her sole business and not working in restaurants anymore and just doing that completely 100%. So it's a fascinating conversation. She's had an incredible journey. She's super talented. She does a lot of vegetable forward cuisine, but she's not strictly vegetable only. And she talks about that, you know, she was vegan for one point in her life and then, you know, decided to get back into tasting anything and everything. And and now that's where she is too. So, you know, she's for hire. She'll do dinner parties, catering, weddings, uh, private parties, all that stuff. So you can reach out to her through her Instagram and make sure you follow her too as well. It's at Carrie, Y-O-I-N-G is kind of her personal account. And then her business account is at ohio.carrie.cooks. Message her whichever one and, um, you know, she'll get back to you on pricing and availability and all that stuff too as well. But that's where you can kind of find her and her website too as well. She does some cooking classes too. She'll come into your home, do some teaching or can do it kind of virtually too as well. So a bunch of different options if you want to get in touch with her and kind of experience some of her cuisine firsthand. You can follow us on Instagram too as well at SpoonMob. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com. You can follow us on all the other social medias, but uh, it's either SpoonMob or SpoonMob1 on those, but mainly Instagram is what we use and the website. Uh, Also make sure you follow the podcast, whatever platform you get your podcasts on. New episodes always drop Thursdays at 1 a.m. This month of December, we're trying to do two a week uh, for you guys. Holiday uh, gift kind of in a way should be Tuesday and Thursdays. And then a week later, they'll appear on YouTube if that's your preferred way of uh, listening. You know, just a week behind, just different metric system and everything like that. So without any further delays, here is my conversation with Chef Carrie Young, the owner founder of Carrie Young Cooks here in Columbus, Ohio. Thanks again for being a bit flexible with scheduling and everything. I know you have that ability now with uh, what you're doing. I do want to get into everything that you kind of currently have going on since you've left the restaurant industry for now, or, or maybe that's a permanent move, but we'll get there. But I always like to start at the beginning with everybody. So take me back to the kind of the early days. How did you first get started with cooking? Where did that come from? I grew up a vegetarian. My mom was a vegetarian and thought it sounded interesting. Read a book about um, the industrial agriculture meat system at 12 years old and thought 
I don't know, this seems icky. I don't like it. So my mom and I kind of cooked a lot of our own food, vegetarian food um, in restaurants 25 years ago. wasn't so great. <laughs> I ate a lot of French fries. So my mom and I um, cooked a lot together and we had this kind of game where we would pull things out of the refrigerator and pantry, compare what we had and just come up with something from there. So it was like our own little version of Chopped at home. So now I have a joke show in my kitchen called using shit up with Carrie. I guess people call it fridge clean out, but I was really interested in it, but I think I never considered a career in it as a child. My parents were really pushing for, you know, the corporate America kind of go to college, you know, get your master or your bachelor's and do something with that. So I was also really interested in fashion design. I decided at like 13 years old, that's what I was going to do. I went to University of Cincinnati's DAP program for fashion. I worked in that industry for about seven years. You know, I had internships in New York, yada, yada, always obsessed with food. I was always hosting parties and cooking and always wanted to try new restaurants and things. And most of the time it was just for fun. Around 26, 27 years old. So about 10 years ago, I started getting really bored. My ex-boyfriend was in culinary school and I was kind of living vicariously through him. And we kind of had this dream where we would start some food business together. And, you know, maybe I would still have my nine to five and then he would do the food stuff, but I would pitch in. Then we broke up and I was like, well, I still want to do that. I decided to go to culinary school nine years ago. I went for a year in Salt Lake City. That's my, where my parents were living at the time. And I just kind of wanted to get out of Ohio for a little bit. So I went out to Salt Lake City, went to culinary school for a year, realized going back to school was not all it was cracked up to be for me. You know, I ignored all the people in the industry who said culinary school is kind of a waste of time, um, waste of money. I didn't believe them. So I decided to go anyway. And halfway through, I realized they were right. <laughs> uh, I was working at a restaurant called Provisions at the time and learning so much more hands-on in the kitchen. So I stopped going to school, threw myself fully into work. Then I moved to Austin, Texas, and I worked at a few restaurants there. I was there for about three years and then came back to Ohio in 2019. You never worked in a restaurant in high school or anything like that? No cooking experience until you decided basically like that's what you wanted to do post, you know, going through college and everything and going back to culinary school, right? Yep. I mean, I had never even been like a hostess in a restaurant, nothing. You wanted to go down this kind of fashion career path and you did for a time. I mean, you were in, in that industry for like six years. I think Joe Galati, who's the owner of Commune, was on this podcast. He was in the fashion industry for something like that too as well. So between the, that industry and cooking, are there similarities at all? Like, I'm curious how somebody goes from, from that industry. Obviously, you had a desire, but those two just don't seem to be connected. Is there something in there that you've discovered since making the transition that, oh, yeah, like I learned how to do project management. So that like overflows into this or something like that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, obviously, the creativity is there for both the realities of the business and, you know, the needs of your market are a big part. You can make whatever clothing, you can make whatever food, but if no one's going to buy it, then it kind of becomes like, what's the point? Those definitely have um, similarities. And I do think that there's been times where I've had a unique perspective because I can see things kind of holistically because of my experience in the fashion world. I think some people, something that actually has come up recently a lot, and I keep talking to people about is 
the idea that if you work for a creative company, you put out an idea or you put out a product, like it doesn't necessarily belong to you. You know, you're, you're doing it for who you're working for. And so, you know, in the restaurant industry, I've heard so many cooks like, oh, that was my idea and they stole it, or that was my idea and they put it on the menu or whatever. And it's like, well, it's kind of a collaboration and it's not about you. It's about what the customer sees or what the client or what the guest sees on the menu or in the store on the walls. Um, they don't care who it came from. You know, they just want to see something that they're interested in. So it's kind of, you know, I think of it more as like kind of a team effort. I think because of that, there are so many hands just to make one top in the fashion industry. There's so many people approving those things and editing them along the way. I think the biggest difference for me that I love is the instant gratification. I would design something or have a hand in designing something. And then it takes nine months or a year for it to actually come to fruition. And then it's been changed so many times since then. And sometimes you recognize that sometimes you don't, it's not very satisfying, but when you're cooking, you get to see it right away. And then, you know, if you make a mistake, it's not as big of a deal. You can redo it right away too. Do you remember the moment when you were just done with the fashion industry, done with the corporate world? <laughs> I do actually. <laughs> I worked for Justice um, Tween Brands, um, so it's little girls' clothing. And I remember sitting in a meeting, and I think it was like forty-five minutes talking about whether or not our customer would like rose gold glitter. Our customer only likes silver and gold glitter, and just roundabout. You know, I'm in a room with all these smart, creative, impressive. You know, mostly women, and. <laughs> Is this really what we're talking about? I just, I, I felt like my mind just turning to mush. I'm like, I can't, this is, it just didn't seem important enough to sit there and argue with people about. And I thought, oh, I really need to get into something I enjoy doing more. So then you wind up in Salt Lake, like you mentioned, your parents were living out there. So did you work at the same time as going through culinary school or was that after? I went at the same time. It was hard. Lots and lots of, you know, midnight 1am rushes to get homework done and things. And I think a lot of cooks definitely go through a period of time, maybe in their whole career, maybe just at the beginning where you get off work and you want to party with everybody. It was really fun. And I really wanted to hang out with my coworkers. And I really wanted to kind of live the line cook lifestyle. But I was also trying to get my homework done. And it was exhausting. Was it a two-year program or was it a four-year program? It was a two-year, so I did half of it. But you didn't finish, right? Or did you? No, I didn't. You mentioned everybody told you, oh, it's kind of a waste of time. You still went, did half of it and decided, yeah, this isn't for me. So looking back on it now, like, what's your take on culinary school? Would you recommend it to somebody if they asked you, like, hey, I want to be a professional chef. Like, should I go to culinary school? I think it's really personal. You obviously don't need a culinary degree to be successful as a chef. You know, most of the chefs I've worked for don't have degrees. I didn't feel super committed to getting that degree because I realized, you know, things were happening for my career without it. But I had a classmate who didn't have any sort of undergraduate degree at that time. So for him, it was like he wanted to be a college graduate. So I understood that more for him. I think that if I wanted to become a chef and was starting off, you know, right out of high school, I would probably have gone and taken it seriously and stuck with it. For me, I have a tendency to be kind of 
terrified of the unknown. And so I, to me, I thought culinary school sounded like a little safe way to start to learn some stuff. Um, I felt kind of silly being a 28 year old starting as a salad cook for the first time in my life, you know? So I was hoping to have a little bit of knowledge coming at me from school at the same time. So I didn't look like such a fool, but now I realize it doesn't matter if you look like a fool, you know, you, you learn. And I think it just depends truly, but you definitely don't need it. What's the food scene in Salt Lake like? Uh, the only person I think we've had on so far, Chris O'Hearn worked out there and he worked for like Robert Redford. So that's kind of like an outlier, but you're working in a restaurant, Salt Lake, not exactly known as this food destinations, mostly known for Sundance Film Festival and stuff like that. So what is kind of that food scene like? You're not wrong. I definitely moved there because I wanted to hike and see some beautiful sights um, more than to follow the food scene. It was not non-existent. Uh, the restaurant I worked for was winning awards, best restaurant, um, Salt Lake City and things. Um, that chef has opened up a few other restaurants. His name's Tyler Stokes. The food there was great. I mean, honestly, I think it would do well in any city. It was definitely more of what I kind of call a culinary school plate where it's like starch, meat, vegetable, you know, make like a garnish kind of thing, um, which I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's definitely not breaking any crazy barriers or, you know, changing any games, but they were doing things well and they were doing farm to table. And, you know, we had a, a really cool connection to um, people foraging for morels. There was a, abundance of those out there. Um, so that was fun to, you know, kind of work with those a lot, but no, definitely not game changing. But I think for me, it was a great starting point because, it wasn't too intimidating. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, these people are famous here. You know, how am I going to fit in? It felt a little bit more like home to me, I think. So being a vegetarian and getting started in the restaurant industry where so many high profile restaurants, they're trying to push boundaries and stuff like that. You're going to have foie and you're going to have different kind of meats on the menu that you have to work with. So how do you navigate that where you're somebody that doesn't eat meat? So I'm actually not a vegetarian anymore. I kind of realized I was limiting the food that I was able to taste. So I actually started eating meat again before I started cooking. And, and truly, it was just like, a, I love tasting food. And, you know, I can't taste that much <laughs> with, what, with the way I eat right now. The first steak I had um, coming back to meat was at uh, Martini's. The Cameron Mitchell restaurant. Say what you will about Cameron Mitchell. I remember just being so nervous and everyone sitting around and watching me, like waiting for my reaction. And I took a bite and I was like, oh my God, I just ate the whole thing. <laughs> and I did not have a stomachache. I don't believe that's true for people, but <laughs> I I was tired of being picky. I was tired of having to ask for modifications and I was tired of being limited in what I could try. So now the way that I kind of try to honor the way I care about animals in, in the food industry is trying to shop locally and using, you know, sustainably raised proteins. That's not always possible, you know, every time, but that's my goal. It always amazes me when you find somebody who's like been a vegetarian since like O2. Because you're just like, what did you eat? Being a vegetarian, vegan is fairly in vogue recently as of 2010, 2014, somewhere in there. It was like when it started, you know, unless you were living in like LA or maybe even New York, 
there's nothing really in between. There was here or there people doing stuff with vegetables. You know, you had some outliers, but it wasn't commonplace to find where half a menu could be vegetarian. You know, they just might have to move a couple things around or anything like that. Well, and I had to be, I mean, even as a kid, I learned to be really savvy about it because, you know, you'd go to a restaurant and it's like vegetable soup and you're like, is the broth vegetarian? And they're like, yeah, because they don't know. And then I get it. And I'm like, there's clearly beef broth. I'm 13 and I know that. So it was tough. And I think, I don't know if that's why I enjoy cooking so much or got into it at that time, but I do think a need for, you know, feeding myself things that weren't just super repetitive and also at the the time there weren't a lot of products out there there weren't a lot of restaurants dedicated to any sort of dietary restrictions really you know i didn't want to live my life eating like veggie burgers and spaghetti we found our places we loved and i can i'm telling you i can still taste this peanut mushroom and tofu dish at this restaurant <laughs> that's been gone for 20 years but yeah any anytime anybody put a little bit more effort into something vegetarian and we were like oh my gosh were there any weird eating laws in Salt Lake? Like, I know in Utah, there's weird drinking laws. Like, there's stuff that you can't, like, be standing and, like, drink a beer or, like, you can't have two beers at the same time. Like, I know there's weird stuff like that. Is there anything on the food side that's odd, rules, regulations, anything that's just you've never really seen anywhere else? I would say it's mostly about the alcohol, but there's a lot of different types of liquor laws. And so a lot of places don't have the ultimate were bar order a shot, you know, you're just here to drink. That's the hardest one to get. So then there's the one where you're a restaurant. And so you have to order food to order alcohol, which is just hilarious because it's Mormons making laws about people who drink alcohol, but they don't drink. So they don't understand. <laughs> what people will do for alcohol. The restaurant I worked in, people would come in and order olives for the table and then just drink a bunch. Or um, there was a bar that opened. It was hysterical. They had a nacho dish on the menu just so they had something that you were allowed to order. And it was $1,000 <laughs> for a plate of nachos just because they had to offer something. You didn't have to buy it. I'm like, I'm dying to know if anybody's ever ordered those or if they actually even have nachos in the kitchen. I'm sure somebody ordered it at one time. They were like pretty drunk and they missed like two of the zeros and thought it was like 10 bucks or something like that. I'm sure. Yeah, it was mostly that kind of stuff. And I, I was definitely shocked when I first got there. We went out for Sundance, actually, mid 20 something who liked to party. We would often start our night at 10 or 11 p.m. And we get to the bar and it's like last call at one. I was like, what? <laughs> I've only had two drinks. What are you talking about? Um, and so I said, oh, I'll go someplace else. And they're like, no, you won't. It is statewide. So that was kind of a buzzkill. So after about a year, you wind up in Austin, Texas. What brought about moving there? A boy. A lot of my moves, very embarrassingly, have had to do with boys. I like to move. I like to live in new cities. I did a bunch of internships in college. I lived in New York. I lived in London. Moving doesn't scare me. So moving for a boy while all my friends were like, that's crazy. I'm like, eh. It's Austin. It'll be cool. You know? Yeah. Him and I didn't work out, but I did love Austin. <laughs> I started working at Uchiko when I got there. A lot of people know Uchi as well. They're sister restaurants. That was freaking terrifying. The high hospitality group. Was that on purpose? Is that where you wanted to work or was it just they were hiring? 
it was not where I wanted to work. Where I wanted to work was called Barley Swine. Do you know that one? I've been there. We went there earlier this year. Uh, Barley Swine and Odd Duck were my favorite restaurants in town. Neither of them were hiring. I did stage at Odd Duck. I ended up working there later. So staging there was a good move on my part um, at that time because they remembered me and everything. Uchiko was hiring. Honestly, it wasn't really my style. I like more kind of home comfort food, uh, less perfect little tweezer plates of food. Uh, Nothing against them, just not my style. And I knew nothing about fish. So I was like, kind of have to pretend like I know anything and just stay quiet and try to keep up. But um, I definitely underestimated that, you know, chefs know that not everybody's going to know everything at this place. You know, no one's going to give the brand new girl who's been cooking for a year a fish and tell her to break it down. So I, that was just a nod to my inexperience at the time. It was terrifying. It was so busy. Uh, We were doing 400 covers a night. I was on the salad and oyster station. So I still have a cute little oyster knife scar on my hand just from frantically shucking oysters. I think I would sell 200 oysters a night. And I'm like, why are you making me do this? You know, perfect little tiny salads and everything. But I just thought too, you asked me about the fashion industry. I mean, I definitely have an eye for composition and design and color balance and movement and things like that. So I was able to kind of use those things with plating. So that was one area where I think people sometimes were surprised to see how good I was at plating for being so inexperienced. Um, So that definitely helped me. You were there for a little while. And then, like you mentioned, you go to Odd Duck, but isn't there like a situation at Whole Foods in between there for a minute? At this time, I am still very unsure of where I want this career to lead. I think that I was still feeling like I needed to go back corporate with it or go, you know, something like I was like, maybe I'll be a food photographer or a stylist, or maybe I will do trend forecasting because that's actually, I was doing trend forecasting for clothing before. So I thought maybe I'll do some sort of food trend forecasting. Um, Maybe I'll develop recipes for someplace like Whole Foods and Whole Foods headquarters is in Austin. So they're like flagship store, which is beautiful and enormous was there. And so I think, you know, it was my attempt to kind of make a step out of the restaurant industry. I felt like I needed some street cred in the industry first. And then I was thinking I could maybe start to work my way out of it. And I lasted for, I think, two months there. It was probably my least favorite job. Oh, I hated it so much. There was just so much wrong going on there. I mean, they didn't care at all about the quality or the taste of the food. I mean, you have people just steaming the crap out of broccoli and sticking it out on the bar and charging $11.99 a pound. You didn't even put any salt on that. (laughs) It made me sad to see all the people walking around looking for food there, looking kind of lost. And I'm thinking, do they think that if they buy food from Whole Foods that it's going to be healthier or better in some way? Because a lot of it isn't. Honestly, you know, I think they do have some really cool, unique products and they do sell local products and things. But as far as like the salad bar and the hot food bar, it's no different from what you would get at a Kroger, but, you know, twice the price. I was there when we were doing a kitchen remodel. So we had to work out of a a catering facility down the street and 
bus all the food in, they were requesting new rounds of food, I think, you know, pretty much every hour. And I remember thinking, we don't go through this much food, though. Like when I'm in the store, I'm not putting out a new tray of everything every hour. There's no way. Well, they were so worried about the customer not knowing that something was different. So they wanted it to be replenished and beautiful and full at any moment. And so what was happening was every time a new tray came in, they took the old tray out and threw it away. And it was perfectly good food. And I think we threw away two tons of food in the course of two or three weeks. And I think that was my final straw. I couldn't do it. The amount of food that a grocery store throws away is insane. If anybody listens, you've never worked at a grocery store or any store that had a grocery component, just the bakery department alone. Certain states are better than others, but a lot of states, they don't allow them to donate any of that food because they're worried about being sued. And it's like, well, if you donate it to a homeless shelter, what homeless person is going to sue you? But you're going to have to find some great lawyer that's like working pro bono and then also taking out this corporate lawsuit. Few and far between, like it's probably really, really bad odds on that. But back in like, I think it was like 08, like I worked at a Walmart near us just during the recession. And you would just see the bakery department every night come in and it's just, oh, there goes a whole cake. And you're just like, what? Like, what are you guys doing? And they're like, yeah, we can't do anything with it. Like they won't let us do anything with it. So we have to throw it away. There has to be an answer. You know, I just don't think anybody's prioritizing finding that answer. When I was working there, when this was happening, after a few days of this, I was like, I don't care. You can fire me. So I started putting together little boxes of food, like little meals, because on my drive home, I would pass at least 30 people asking for money or food on the street. You know, I just threw away my body weight of food and I'm going to drive past them and say, sorry, I don't have anything. So I started putting them in boxes and technically I could have gotten fired, considered stealing. I believe in good trouble. Yeah. One of the managers came in and, and she said, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm feeding all the people I drive past tonight. And he said, okay. I think people also forget too, like Whole Foods used to be an independent company. Like they weren't always owned by Amazon and it was a very cult-like following. Like it was, if you bought anything from Whole Foods, it was healthier than any place else in any other grocery store. It didn't have the healthiness of all the foods in the store, but it's like, if you walk through, I mean, obviously it's changed now because of Amazon, but even back in the day, there was some stuff that you could find that was at both. My biggest issue always with Whole Foods was like, I could never find everything that I wanted during that trip. I always had to go somewhere else. Okay. Yeah. You guys have all these breads, but like none of them are good. Yeah. I get it super healthy, but it like, it tastes like cardboard. Like what else we got here? So you wind up working at Odd Duck, which you staged at. So did they call you finally, or were you just kind of following up with them? I followed up. So I, I staged again um, and they were like, we're not hiring. And I was like, my God, you have to hire me. I can't take this anymore. I think it was about a month later. They were like, all right, we got a spot. It was interesting because when I staged there the first time and then the second time, it was all the same staff. Their turnover was insanely low. It was like a family. Everybody was so close. The chefs would hug every single cook on the way out the door every day. <laughs> I have mixed feelings about that, but generally it's nice. Anyway, so the turnover was insanely low, which was why it was so hard to get in there. He who shall not be named took over and the culture took a nose dive. <laughs> I didn't know that at the time. So, you know, they had an opening and I was super excited. I learned so much there. I think 
that was the most formative period of my career. Everything was farm to table. Everything was from scratch. Everything. Like we were making our own everything bagel seasoning spice. You know, I mean, every single like things that you could easily just buy. We were making all of our pickles, all of our mayonnaises, everything. Yeah, I worked there for two years. It was amazing. I learned so much. Um, and to this day, I think about the values that we had there as far as food integrity, you know, supporting farmers, supporting local, all of it was amazing on that end. The chef who took over as CDC while I was there, I'm banking like 99%. He won't listen to this. So if he does, maybe he'll get some advice, but he wasn't mentally well, I don't think. He made comments to me and acknowledging it like, oh, wow, I wish I could lose my temper less so people could actually learn, you know, and stuff like that. But it was really tough to be someplace where the owners are so amazing. The idea behind the restaurant so amazing. The food's so amazing. The guests were so amazing. You know, a lot of my coworkers were so amazing. And this one person just, it was just like a little cancer in there. So leaving that place was really bittersweet, but I still, it's like, it's, I think of it almost like a X. Sometimes still kind of hard to think about because it makes me kind of sad because I really did love it. I think you come back to Columbus from there, right? I do. Yeah. And then you're working as an assistant kitchen manager at the kitchen. How'd you wind up there? Yeah, that was a pretty cool little serendipitous uh, moment. I left Austin again because of a boy. So this one was a breakup. (laughs) And I was realizing that Austin was extremely expensive uh, to live on my own. And I was having such a hard time at Odd Duck because of that chef. So I was like, maybe my time in Austin is over. I felt really homesick. I felt like I just wanted to be around people who knew and loved me. And I wanted to feel a little bit safe. And so Columbus um, was kind of calling my name. I'm technically from Cincinnati, but Columbus is home. This is where all my friends are and things. So, and you know, a nice little distance from my family and stuff. Close enough. I actually reached out to the kitchen because in my head, I wanted to come back and do a pop-up dinner. Um, I really wanted to just spend some time focusing on the food that I wanted to make. I wanted to get creative. I wanted to be inspired by the produce and things that I could find myself surrounded by in Columbus again. And I was coming back in late summer. So I thought it would be a really cool like transitional pop-up dinner. So I started kind of just looking around for venues actually. Um, So I contacted the kitchen and I start talking to Anne, one of the owners on the phone. So I was still in Texas at this point and she was just so amazing. I talking to her was so exciting. Um, She was like, oh my gosh, I love how excited you are about food. And, you know, so then it kind of got to the point where it was like, well, maybe you should just work here. So I moved back, interviewed, and I was really excited that they saw my potential as a manager because I hadn't yet been a manager in this industry. So I felt like, oh, wow, they see something in me that maybe other places ignored or maybe I wasn't ready you know, before that. So that was exciting. Um, I was there for probably about six months. Dustin was the head kitchen manager and he's Anne's brother. So it was a little family affair. Um, And then Jen is the other owner of the kitchen. 
So I loved that it was female owned. Dustin was so sweet, so flexible. He gave me so much space. Um, So I really liked that aspect. I got to really kind of, you know, flex some creativity and kind of impact some positive changes. You know, there was, they kind of proudly say that they're not chefs. Um, obviously they know how to cook and they understand catering like nobody else really. But so there were some technical things that I saw that I wanted to improve and they were really open-minded to those things. So that was a really fun kind of time for me to see if I had what it takes to be a manager and also kind of learn more about catering that I hadn't really dived into yet. So I was there for six months, like I said, it was crazy. The December that I was there was their record-breaking month in the seven years they had been open. We were doing like three or four events a day some days. It was nuts. Uh, mostly just Dustin and I running all of it. We had some solid cooks, but a lot of, they needed direction. So it was hands-on with everything. And then COVID is the reason I left the kitchen badly. During your time there, I mean, assistant kitchen manager, you're wearing a lot of different hats. I mean, you're doing cooking, menu creation, development, catering, inventory, managing employees. What's the biggest challenge in juggling all that stuff? I think a lot of chefs can relate to this. You're like safe places cooking. And so it's easy to kind of just hide from everything else and just, you know, start cooking. But a lot of times you need to delegate the cooking to other people and take care of the more big picture things. So I think for me, it was hard to walk away from the stovetop. It was hard for me to put my knife down and be like, okay, I need to let somebody else do this. I had never in my life had a professional, constructive, growing, difficult conversation. And I remember my first one that I did there and I saw the need for it because it was this young cook who was really passionate, love her to death, but she wasn't, you know, she was making some mistakes and she was, she had a lot of room for growth. I felt like she didn't know. I felt like nobody was telling her. Um, And I felt like that wasn't fair because I was remembering, God, I wish people had candy coated it a little bit when I was year one, but you know, they didn't. I am who I am now because of the feedback I received, even if it was hard to hear sometimes. I felt like she deserved that. And so I spent my whole day off work, writing down notes, talking to my mom, who's proudly fired countless people in her career. (laughs) I don't know how you do that. I was so nervous. So anybody listening who has like a boss who might say something, I mean, you know, it's hard for us (laughs) to, but that was a really big growing opportunity for me because she took it so well. She was thankful for the feedback and I went out of my way to try to relate it to things that I had been through. Um, I really just wanted it to be productive and and helpful for her. But at the end of the day, it was really helpful for me too. And I think since then, I've definitely been able to manage those things better. And I don't think I would have been as effective of a manager at Chapman's had I not had that little experience there. So yeah, like you mentioned, COVID happens, everything shuts down. At any point during that, before your next gig, did you think about exiting the industry and going back to the corporate world or? Oh yeah. I applied to Bath and Body Works. I tried to get back into retail. I wanted to be a graphic designer for Bath and Body Works and they did not want me. I was still very, I don't want to say lost, but just trying to figure it out. And I think I was a little impatient for an answer. I was laid off in March from the kitchen. 
And I didn't start working at Chapman's till September. So I had a good six months in between. And I had like post-it notes all over my family room walls with all my goals and wishes and values and ideas and trying to kind of make sense of it all. Um, And then I had a really great conversation. Hilariously, one of my very first internships in the fashion industry, my boss, it was at Granimals, the little kids clothing company sold at Walmart. Her name is Sarah. And she had since left and become a farmer. Um, so we both left and, you know, we're living our hippie, loving food lifestyles. And so I reached back out to her and I don't think I had spoken to her in 10 years, at least. And she's like, don't become a farmer. She's like, I made $13,000 my first year. But she gave me really good advice. She's like, you don't have to know what it is you're going to do. Just start doing something to start doing stuff and head towards some direction and it'll kind of fall into place. And I don't think I totally believed her at the time, but now looking back, I totally do. So I decided I'm just going to make an Instagram for my food. I'm not super um, savvy with social media and I'm not super into it. It's definitely my least favorite part of the job, but I thought if I want anybody in the city to know who I am, if I want anybody in the city to pay me for my food. I have to have pictures and I have to have an Instagram. So I started that and I just started trying to use my time to learn and get to know people and network. Um, And so I met Issa from Three Bites Bakery during that time, just for Instagram. And we've done collabs together. So that's turned out to be a great, you know, friendship. I met somebody named Katie, who I was trading her pickles and kimchi for her bread. Uh, We would just drop things off on each other's porches. So I loved that. I thought that was so fun. And because of her, I found out about BJ and Chapman. So it just kind of, you know, all started falling into place that way. Yeah, I started um, doing little like pop-up meals, selling those, and they were really popular. I was selling 45, 50 meals at a time. Um, I was having friends help me. I was really into, you know, social justice. And so I was doing some fundraisers and stuff, which we still do now every once in a while. So yeah, I was just trying to like kind of immerse myself in it and stay busy and kind of re-inspire myself to figure out what it is that I wanted to do. You wind up joining Chapman's. What kind of led to you wanting to work there? Like, obviously you heard about it. They were probably hiring, you know, at the time or looking for people, but what made you kind of want to work there? Katie woman told me about it. She, she thought it sounded like it was going to be focused on local produce and farm to table. She talked a lot about BJ's reputation and I was mostly impressed by that. I honestly wasn't sure if I wanted to go back into the industry. And at the time I was kind of like, oh, there's only so many restaurants here that I would want to work for. When she was like, oh, have you heard of this new place opening up in German Village? I was like, no. Um, So I looked into it and I saw that BJ was involved with Freedom a la carte which I thought was really impressive and exciting. Um, The one chef I mentioned earlier was just the worst of them. (laughs) So I think for me, I was like, okay, this guy seems like a decent person. And like, he's actively trying to change the way that the culture is in the industry. So I would say, yeah, it was mostly my respect for BJ that made me want to go to Chapman's. So we've had a few alumni from Chapman's on this podcast. So 
give me your best story about working with BJ. I guess it's not really a story for me, but I think for A, just how involved he was from the start was really exciting to me. And he is a really good teacher. He will take 30 minutes out of his day to stand there and watch something cook with you and tell you, oh, that's happening because this is changing. And that's happening because water's releasing. You know, even if not, not much is happening and you're standing there staring at a pot, I've never had a manager do that with that much dedication. And I think, you know, for me, the other thing about BJ that was really cool was how he's great at realizing that people need a shout out. People need, you know, a little pat on the back and they need to be told they're doing a good job. And that's so far, you know, few in between here in this industry. And I remember, you know, one of my first earlier family meals, I think I just made like a tomato soup, just a really basic creamy tomato soup with grilled cheese. And he's like yelling from across the restaurant, like, how, what, what you want in this? <laughs> like thinking that it's a bad thing, you know, and he's like, this is freaking awesome. I was like, it feels so insignificant, but it's not, you know, it's such a thankless, hard job. So just someone yelling across the restaurant that it's awesome was very validating. <laughs> Best Wesley Grubb story. Wes is a tough cookie. I don't know if you can tell he's a deer, but he, you know, it takes six months for him to be like, Maybe I like you. Maybe I'll talk to you now. Wes was working on a tamago dish, the folded Japanese style um, omelet. And you have a specialty pan and there's a technique to it. And of course, if you look online, a Japanese person who's been making this their whole life make it look so easy. But of course, it's not. I hadn't really interacted with him a whole lot at this point. I was an AM cook and he was mostly working evenings. You know, I can be a little shy and intimidated by people. So I felt nervous to try to break the ice with him a little bit. But he was working on that. And I asked him if he would show me how to make it next time he made it. And how many times have I asked a chef to show me something? And then I look over and they've done it already and never told me to come watch. He came and found me and was like, I'm doing it. Come back with me. And I was really excited that he remembered that I wanted to learn and was willing to take the time. But not just that, he was so humble. He was telling me how many times he messed this up before he got it. And he's like, I still don't got it. I hope this one turns out kind of thing. And he's showing me and he's like, oh, that was stupid. Why did I do it like that and stuff? And, you know, that was a really cool moment for me because I've been insecure every freaking moment that I've been cooking. And you always think that everybody else knows what they're doing, you know? And so for somebody who has so much experience and so much knowledge to sit there and say, I'm messing up. And, you know, he was almost, I don't want to say embarrassed, but maybe that he would mess up in front of me. And we kind of like learned together. And that was a really cool moment, I think, where then we kind of started exchanging ideas more and like it led to a pretty cool relationship. Best Matt Larkin story. Again, not so much a story, but when I started at Chapman's, I told them I wanted to be a sous chef. I started as a cook and I wanted to be a sous chef. And Matt started working there a few weeks before me. I think it was obvious that we both were pretty hungry for it. And he got promoted first. And I was not upset. He definitely deserved it. Um, I respected him a lot. But I think I was kind of like, oh, crap. Okay. Why did he get promoted and why didn't I? And what can I learn from what he's doing that I'm not doing? And so, I mean, he is just so poised and so cool, calm and collected. And I'm not, 
you know, I think my emotions show easily and my insecurities can show easily. And I realized like he's got that level head that sets the pace in the kitchen and sets the tone in the kitchen. And he's, you know, really good at helping these young cooks gain some confidence. And um, I overheard him giving some tough feedback that I was like, ooh, would I be comfortable giving that tough feedback? You know, would I be too, would I sugarcoat it too much? I definitely like learned a lot from that period of time. And then by the time it was, you know, my turn, I felt a lot more ready. So if he's listening, thank you. But I do want to point out, like, it's hard when someone else gets promoted over you and, you know, multiple people are going for the same thing. And there's a bunch of different ways that you can take it most of which are not the right way to do it. But like, that's like the best way that you can take it is, all right, what did this other person do? Or what is this other person doing that I'm not doing that I need to learn? Or most people will be like, this is bullshit, I quit or whatever, or I'm just going to do my thing. Or that's one of the things too, where it's like, if you're going to promote somebody, you have to factor like, how are the people that aren't going to get promoted take this? And how are they going to react? And, and that becomes like a whole weird game with an office culture. You know, let's see how they react. And then if they don't do well, well, then obviously we made the right choice thing. Or Yeah, totally. Yeah. Like you just proved us right. And I definitely didn't want to do that. <laughs> I think a lot of people think your promotability is just based on how good of a cook you are, how creative or how impressive you are with cooking. When you're talking about becoming a manager, I mean, I, I think being a chef is one of the hardest management positions, you know, that I'm aware of because there's just so much that can go wrong constantly at any given moment. And you have so many personalities and you have so many moving parts and you have such a long list of things that you have to physically get done during the day, but you also have to make sure you're watching everybody else. You have your chef getting mad at you because somebody else did something that you didn't catch. And then, you know, and then you have so-and-so wanting to complain about something and you're just like, ah. <laughs> like it's, it's crazy. And I've heard so many young cooks say, oh, why didn't I get promoted? Or I deserved a promotion. I wanted a promotion or I want to take your spot when you leave. And I'm like, do you really want that? Is that what you, you know, I don't think that's what you really want. Like you don't, you cook less when you become a chef, you deal with more of the bull crap. You know, it's like, I don't think a lot of people are truly ready. And I do want to give a, a shout out to just therapy for my ability to take Matt's promotions so well, because I was talking to my therapist throughout this whole process. And she's like, Carrie, are you ready? Are you ready to be a chef? And I was like, I don't know. You know, maybe I'm, I think I said, I'm ready to be ready. Maybe I'm not ready yet, but I'm ready to be ready. And so then we started making like actual objectives for me to like goals to work towards. Yeah, that helped me a lot. I do think that a lot of young cooks, when other people get promoted and things, it's like they take it as a slight to their cooking skills. And they don't stop and think like, can I really manage? Can I deal with this much? You know, and do I want to? And I, I think a lot of them probably actually don't. They just want the satisfaction. Last story that we need. Best Justin Singer story. Oh, gosh. I have so many Justin Singer stories. Justin and I were the only two AM staff there for, I don't know, maybe a year. So it was just <laughs> every morning together. We had some fun. If any Chapman staff was listening, they're going to laugh about this because 
it's notorious. My birthday I had when I was working there, my first birthday at Chapman's, I had kind of an emotional breakdown, <laughs> not in a good space mentally. Um, you know, I was having a lot of like depression and anxiety and things and that I hadn't worked through yet. And I get to work that day and I'm like, I've decided I'm going to have a great day. I'm going to be the birthday girl and I'm going to make my own day special and I don't care what anybody does. And so I get to work and like Justin, I think he did say happy birthday, but like nobody else did. And so I was like, oh shit, what's going on? Like no one cares. <laughs> so I started getting all sad. I'm like, oh, nobody likes me here. I knew it. Then family meal comes about. And he has made this giant spread of breakfast tacos because that was like one of my favorite things that I didn't get to have anymore leaving Austin. And he made me a cake inspired by my favorite ice cream flavor we had, which was the corn and blueberry. So he made me like a wheat corn cake with a blueberry swirl, and like a blueberry frosting. It was so beautiful. It was so delicious. And I felt like such an idiot. But what's fun about that is it kind of kicked off the tradition of Justin making specialty cakes for people. And I love it because he can be a little tough cookie as well sometimes. And then you just see this like really sweet side of him where he, you know, spends three, four hours of his night off after working all day, making a unique cake for somebody inspired by what they like. So it was really nice little touch, but you know, that was when we had 12 people on the staff. So I don't think that's possible anymore. When that New York times article came out, what was your reaction to it? Did you understand how big it was going to be or was it just kind of like oh cool yeah whatever yeah i think it was a little surreal for all of us it was definitely a surprise but i think we felt deserving of it you know we were all working our asses off and trying to put out the best food we could with the best atmosphere we could and you know i thought i felt like we had something really special going so i felt happy and and you know proud of it and you know obviously the articles never mention all the other people involved but that's okay we knew we did it you know <laughs> we knew it was us grinding away every day earning that so it was really satisfying of course my parents are always looking for ways to make it seem like I'm not just like some kitchen person, you know, like just, just some cook. So they went around telling everybody, Carrie works for one of the best 50 restaurants in the United States. I'm like, that's not exactly what it was, but sure. Let's, let's say that. During your time at Chapman's, are you also still doing your own thing on the side and slowly building that? Yeah, I was, which was absolutely bonkers for a while. I was just working all day, every day, pretty much. Um, so I wasn't exactly seeking out jobs um, on the side, but if something came along, I would usually take it. There's a family that throws an enormous 4th of July party every year, and I'm now forever their 4th of July chef because <laughs> I've done the past two years. First year I did with them was for 40 people, and I was working full-time at Chapman's. So that was a huge challenge. I mean, I was getting home from work at 5, 6 p.m. and working in my home kitchen until midnight, going to work at 8 a.m. the next day. And I think that kind of proved to me that I'm doing the right thing because I never got sick of it. I mean, I got sick of being on my feet. I got sick of doing dishes. You know, I got tired, but I was still really excited about the food. So that kind of validated things for me. And I want to say May this year, maybe April, I had eight different requests for catering jobs 
that I turned down because at that point I was a manager and it was just way too much for me. And I think that's the moment where I was like, oh, I think now's the time to do my own thing. So that was like once you had all those requests coming in, you knew like it could be something that instead of being a side business, it could be your main business essentially. And I think I've always had this desire to be my own boss. And I've always had kind of an entrepreneurial spirit, even if I can't say it. So I think that I was always kind of going towards this. I, you know, I was always dreaming up restaurants that I could have or catering ideas or any sort of food business ideas I was coming up with. It's funny because I didn't like set out and decide to start a catering business. It's just kind of, this is what I started doing and it's been good and everything's kind of falling into place. But you do more than catering. I want to make that abundantly clear too. I mean, you do supper clubs, cooking lessons, I think meal prep, you'll do recipe and menu consulting. How hard is it to manage all those different services that you offer? Or is it more about just managing your time efficiently? Yeah, managing my time is definitely a challenge for me. My partner works from home as well. So sometimes we're like, oh my gosh, we're just hanging out. Oops, what are we doing? We've been telling each other stories for 45 minutes. Get back to work. You saw my list of services from my website, probably. Um, I haven't been doing meal prep. I think I, I realized that it was just too much hands-on work for not enough payoff. I mean, how much can you charge somebody for prepped weekday dinners and things? I, I'm I'm kind of looking for more high price events, but I do plan on doing some classes and things. I have somebody who wants a class um, for a anniversary present for her husband. And for me, I have trouble like narrowing down my ideas. I'm like, oh my gosh, I could teach him anything. What does he want to know? You know, so it's like, I'm like, maybe I should have a catalog of, of things that I will teach, but um, are the supper clubs and the catering are definitely my biggest things right now, mostly in house dinner parties for six to 10 people, I would say is generally my bread and butter. Um, but I've been doing some showers and small weddings and things too. Is menu development curated based on your clientele or is that based off seasonality? Like how do you kind of navigate? Because obviously each event's a little different. My goal is to someday have a catalog of menus. But right now I'm kind of just coming up with stuff as I go. Um, I, I'll talk to the client and kind of just find out, you know, dietary restrictions, preferences. I'll kind of ask them, like, do you like bold, spiced, you know, strong flavors or do you prefer brighter, lighter flavors, comfort food? you know, this and that, that kind of stuff. I have a survey that I kind of forgot about until just now, actually. <laughs> so I'll try to just kind of suss out what it is they're looking for. And what I find is that a lot of times they maybe don't know what it is that they want. They want me to tell them. That's been easier than I've expected. Most of the time we'll have a 20 minute phone conversation. I'll pull together a menu and send it to them. And they're like, looks great. I like coming up with the menus as I go because it really gives me a chance to be creative. You know, I always try to use as much local and seasonal as I can. Of course, if they're like, I want fettuccine Alfredo, there's only so much I can do there. But I encourage people to stay open-minded. And my favorite is when they're like, oh, you don't even have to send us a menu. Just come up with something and bring it. So I've had a few of those and that's really fun. I try to encourage people to stay open-minded because 
I can't tell you how many times I've had someone say, oh, I don't normally like curry, but I liked this, you know, and I think people just have like a very one dimensional idea of what an ingredient looks like from their experience. And obviously I have all these different experiences and all these different cultures I've learned from. So I I like to try to push, push people a little bit out of their comfort zone. When you get that like open availability, when it's do whatever you want, how do you edit yourself within your own boundaries? So you're not going like way over here. What? Cause you want to come up with something new and maybe that's a great opportunity to try something new that maybe you haven't had on the menu before, but kind of like, how do you know that that's ready to be put out there and they're going to be happy with it? You have to balance that, right? So funny. I did a dinner with Free Bites Bakery. And we, we were talking about that because I was like, oh, I haven't had this meal yet. You know, and I'm like, I'm going to get out for these people. And she said she does the same thing. So I think it was a little validating because we're like, we're winging it, but we're winging it with experience and knowledge. Sometimes it's the plate or the sauce or the whatever is evolving as I'm working on it. You know, I'm all of a sudden coming up with this cool idea to add to it, or I'm like, oh, editing as I go to, it kind of just comes together. And it's always like a little terrifying, but I think the more I do it, the more I can trust myself that the knowledge that I have will lead me in the right direction. And at the end of the day, sometimes I put out something and I'm like, I probably should have done this a little bit differently, but they don't know that, you know, and they're still excited. And of course, I want to do my best. And of course, I want to make everybody happy. But at the end of the day, it's it's food. (laughs) It's not going to completely change anybody's life. (laughs) When you're doing a supper club and you go into somebody's home, because me and my wife have talked about doing something like that. And the thing that always gets us is like, you know, now we have this oven that's from like 07 and it takes 15 minutes to preheat no matter like what temperature that you want to put it on. So how do you navigate that where you're going into like with a restaurant, you know, the equipment, you know, it takes a little bit to learn, but like once you figure it out, you're good. But now every time you're going into somebody's home, it's all new equipment. You don't know like, okay, put this on high. Is that actually high? Is the knob broken? Like, how do you deal with those challenges? That's one of the biggest challenges, I would say. Most of the time, I'm going into fairly wealthy people's homes who have insane kitchens with like ovens that I think can probably fly to space. Um <laughs> I always joke that the nicer the house, the harder it is to find the microwave and the trash can. I do my best. There's definitely been some mishaps. I Last weekend, their oven, I don't think would go underneath 300. And a lot of times they have two ovens. So I like to try to have one as like a warming oven, especially if you're doing like a buffet, you have to have a lot of different stuff warm at the same time, um, which can be a challenge. And so I was trying to, I made like all these sliders and I'm trying to hold them in the oven warm. And then all of a sudden I smell something and I'm like, oh my God, they're burning. So I'm like rushing over and there's flame, you know, smoke coming out. There's no good answer. I just have to pretend I'm on a cooking show. It's like, you know, extreme chopped or something. I don't know. Is there any ingredient or something that you haven't used much of that you're kind of excited to maybe incorporate into new dishes as you kind of get inspiration from talking to different people and what their kind of dietary restrictions are or boundaries are? I do get a lot of requests for vegan stuff. 
I think that's a really exciting direction. I think it's becoming apparent that our way of eating isn't sustainable and we're going to have to start, you know, moving away from the meat takes up the half the plate and then starch and veggie kind of model. I love to see more and more people doing vegan things, even when they're not. I end up making vegan and vegetarian food all the time just because I love cooking with veggies. I had two dishes on the menu at Chapman's, um, the carrot salad and the falafel. Carrot salad was vegan if you left off the cheese and the falafel was vegan as is. So I think there's a lot of underrated opportunities with vegetables in general. And I'm just excited to see people more curious about things. Um, Just like, you know, now you see delicata squash at the grocery store where I don't think five to 10 years ago, you would have seen that at all. You know, maybe just butternut squash and um, you know, pumpkins or something, but just in general, I'm, I'm excited to see people more open-minded and more curious about those more unique produce. With sustainability being something that's pretty important to you, are you a, a root to tip chef? I'm assuming. I attempt. It's not always feasible. I've definitely gone like 100% that direction. And then I'm like, oh, I have a jar of pickled kale stems here that I don't want to eat. And I don't think anybody else really wants to eat. So (laughs) let's be realistic here. I do compost. I have a, what's it called? The worm composting. I forget the name for it. Oh, when you make the box and then you kind of like spread it out and they go down the line and then you, yeah, flip them back. I I do have like a a worm bin for composting at my house. Um, There's only so much you can put in that. You know, they they can only eat so fast. I learned that the hard way. That's when you get a stinky compost bin. (laughs) I've eased up on myself and my expectations for myself to be 100% sustainable. I make efforts. I make efforts to recycle. I make efforts to compost. And I make efforts to use all of an ingredient. But sometimes it's just not feasible. How has the break from the daily restaurant grind been since you've left? Yeah, it's been pretty amazing for me. I found out about two years ago that I have some pretty extreme anxiety that because I've lived with it for so long, I didn't realize that other people didn't live like that too. I also found out that I... Um, well, my therapist described me as a highly sensitive person, which I started doing more research into. And it's funny because it was like my culinary career and my mental health coming together at this really serendipitous time was just a really, really amazing like year and a half of growth for me. Learning that I'm a highly sensitive person and that I have anxiety, I realized that stimuli affect me a lot more than maybe most people. Um, So working in restaurants, even if it's a fun, happy, smooth day, there's so much going on. There are so many bodies moving around in a fast way. It's hot. Um, You know, there's a lot of noises. There's a lot of pivots. I'm like, oh, finally, I get to do this project I've been trying to get to all day. And then, oh, somebody needs you at the back door again. There's a delivery. It was fun and exciting. And it made me feel kind of like this like badass, you know, putting out fires left and right, dealing with all these different things, pivoting constantly. But when I would leave work every day, again, even on a nice, happy, fun day, I would leave work and my insides would be like buzzing. Um, It's like I couldn't catch my breath. And sometimes I would just burst into tears for no reason because it was just like so overwhelming to my nervous system. And so that was another reason I thought 
I should try to explore working on my own. It was 110% the right decision for me. Um, I feel so much more like myself and I feel so much more um, calm and confident and inspired because I'm not giving away so much of my energy just to the space. A lot of chefs are leaving restaurants. There's been, a, I think, a pretty big uptick in people starting their own private chef business. The CDC at Rustic Canyon, like last month left and he'd been there for like seven years. He's starting his own thing. Like there's so many people that I think are getting out of the daily life of kitchens for one reason or another. It's mental health. Some it's the next step to launching their own thing or, or whatever. Do you think that's going to continue to happen based on your experience in the industry that, or do you think there'll be, yeah, everything's kind of flowing that direction now, but then maybe it'll kind of flow back the other way. That's a great question. I think that it will continue that way. I did a dinner party for a group of eight ladies. I think there were two birthdays in the group. And at the end of the dinner, they were like, okay, we're getting out our calendars. And so you can write down all of our birthdays because we want you to do this for all of our birthdays for the next year. Because they're like, why would we want to go to a restaurant where we have to wear shoes and pay four times the price for a glass of wine and leave after an hour and a half and drive and park and all this stuff. So they're like, this is so much more fun. You know, I think there's always, there's always going to be a need and a love for restaurants. Um, I don't think it's going to replace it, but I think that, you know, COVID just really just changed up so much about the way that people work in all industries. And I think during COVID, I would have said, oh, everyone's going to be like dying to get out of their houses and there's just going to be a mass rush to the restaurants. It was kind of opposite. I think people realized like, oh, being home is kind of nice, you know, and maybe there's room in my life for both of these being a special occasion. I can still do it at my house too. You recently worked with Three Bites Bakery for a fundraiser. What was the goal? What was the organization you guys are raising money for? Um, we are raising money for Taller Salud. It is a nonprofit in Puerto Rico. They helped a lot with um, the disaster uh, relief after Hurricane Maria. My partner and I went to Puerto Rico this past January, and I think it was my favorite vacation I've ever had. Um, it was just so beautiful, so diverse. The food was amazing. The scenery was amazing. The, the music, the art, I just loved it so much. And we saw a lot of damage still from Maria, which I think was in 2017. And so just to hear that they lost 100% of their power recently, I it broke my heart. Um, and I kind of just wanted to do a little, you know, nod to how much I loved that place and how much do we want to get into like United States' relationship with Puerto Rico. And I just, it feels wrong in a lot of ways to me. And I felt like they really, you know, need some help and deserve some help. So we raised a thousand dollars, which is exciting, but that's nothing compared to what they need. You know, I just, I, I got to do something. It feels so helpless. And that's like, gives me a little sense of like, okay, I'm contributing in, in some way. And I think if more people did that, it would be more impactful, you know? Puerto Rico is a weird situation in that it's a U.S. territory. They've had the ability to have on their own ballot if they want statehood. It, it's close, but sometimes it hasn't passed. But then even if it does pass, it winds up getting shot down by our Congress. 
it's a tax haven for wealthy people. So that's part of the reason why they don't want it to change. There's this weird thing where like any goods have to hit the U.S. mainland first before they can go to Puerto Rico. So then there's like a delay in supplies getting there. There's a whole thing. I mean, it should be a state, but I don't know when they can't even make D.C. a state. Like They're still trying to do that. So I think eventually it'll happen. You just need almost like this, the right lineup of people in Congress to get enough stuff passed to, to get that through. And that's like threading the needle, I think, at this point. You've worked in uh, Columbus for a couple years uh, now. How has the food and restaurant and hospitality beverage industry changed since you've been uh, involved with it? And uh, what do you think still needs to change here? And where do you think it's headed? I have so many conflicting thoughts about this because I hate the idea of, oh, Ohio, it's so far behind. We have to go in and show them what's up, you know, or, you know, Ohioans, they don't know about this ingredient or they don't know a, a good food or whatever. Um, Cause I don't think that's true. I think sometimes we do it a little bit differently. I still think there's like some amazing stuff here. I think in some ways I'm curious to know how much of a holdup in Columbus being like a really exciting food city is coming from the supply and how much is coming from the demand. Um, meaning if we provided more exciting, boundary pushing, unique things, would it be embraced? I think so. I think that some people assume that it wouldn't, like we're a bunch of bumpkins, you know? <laughs> But I do think that it's starting to happen. I mean, I think Chapman's was really unique when it opened and people obviously love it. So there's there's definitely a market for it. You also have a lot of people who are like, nope, I want to go to Rusty Bucket. That's what I know. You definitely have like those two things happening at the same time. That's why I, I mentioned just pushing people a little bit out of their comfort zone. You know, I think once people start, you know, maybe you give them something that they haven't had in a more familiar way and they'll be a little bit more open-minded. And I think that I am seeing that. I think, again, like I mentioned, people are more curious and more open-minded about different things and talking about different things. And then they're like excited to try it. I don't know. I feel like I'm like kind of repeating myself now. Yeah. It's hard to figure out how much of the demand for the food scene overall to move to the next level is there, where I think everybody in the industry feels like it's there because there are people coming in from other states and everything. But then you see the Columbus subreddit and like people don't want to pay more than $5 for a burger. And you're just like, well, how much of that group is here and how much of the other group is here too? So it's trying to figure like that out. You have like people that have never even left Ohio too as well, which is always weird when you encounter somebody like that. And you're just like, wait, what? You never left the borders? I think it's like a matter of just seeing it. Somebody who doesn't want to pay $5 for a burger, it's it's education. It's like, well, why would a burger cost $18 instead of five? And when you learn about all that goes into it, and there's so many reasons to pay the $18, whether it's because you want your city to thrive and you want people to be paid well, because then they go and shop and then they can live their lives in a more, you know, 
full, robust, happy, healthy way, which benefits the community as a whole, whether it's because you realize that a cow grown locally, you know, and and fed well and treated well takes more manpower, it takes more effort, you know, it's not as commodified. So you can't, you have to pay more, right? So it's whether you care about like the minerals and the health of that burger, or you care about the farmer who took care of that cow, if you care about, it's going to taste better too. So it's like, there's so many benefits. And I think finding the right benefit for the right people is a big one. I, you know, when I talked to my, my dad's a little ignorant about food and things, and he'll ask me questions and he'll say, oh, you know, is GMO good or bad? And I'm like, well, what do you consider good? And what do you consider bad? Like, is it going to give you cancer instantly and you're going to drop dead? No. Does it provide more food for more people? Yeah. So that's good. But does it create all these other hosts of problems? And do you care about the longevity of the soil that's being used? Do you care about the health of the farmer that's working on those crops? You know, there's there's other things that make something like, quote unquote, bad, even if it's not obvious right in front of you. So I, for me, I think it's a lot of education and I think it's a lot of exposure. And I'll go back to the fashion industry real quick. I remember when skinny jeans came out, um, what was that? Probably 2006 was when they first got big. And I remember wearing my skinny jeans around all my friends and my family and being ridiculed <laughs> forever. Like I remember my best friend said, I will never be caught dead in skinny jeans. And I was like, yes, you will. And a year later, she was like, I bought skinny jeans. <laughs> It took people seeing other people doing something that seemed scary to them and unfamiliar and strange. And once you got used to seeing it on other people, then you're like, okay, maybe I'll try it. And then it just becomes the norm. So in a really you know clunky way of explaining my train of thought there, I do think that once people are exposed to better quality, unique flavors, et cetera, that they'll be more open-minded to it. What's next for you professionally? Just kind of taking it day by day. Um, I have a little log where I write down lessons learned each time. So I'm I'm trying to make sure that I'm growing with each event. And every once in a while, I'm like, what am I doing? I'm just, you know, kind of doing the same thing over and over. And then I look back and I'm like, oh, wait, no, I'm not. I've actually grown quite a bit. I am throwing around this idea that if I were to try to grow, I would need to have more systems in place. I wouldn't necessarily be able to make a brand new menu every time. I wouldn't necessarily um, be able to be physically there doing it every time. I would maybe have to hire other people. That's a hard one for me because it is so personal. I mean, I don't really even have a business name. I just go by my name you know, the food really represents me. I truly don't know. And sometimes I feel bad about that. But then I also remember that five years ago, I would never have known that I'd be doing this now. So, you know, again, as long as I'm working towards something and growing, I feel pretty confident that things will fall into place. Do you think you'll ever do something like a ticketed pop-up event somewhere, like find a space and do like an eight-course tasting menu, just open to the public? Absolutely. So that's actually the three bites dinner that I did. Um, three bites bakery dinner that I did was like a little pop up. She was doing a um, dinner series with different chefs each week. So she asked if I could do a vegetarian meal. I said, heck yeah. And that was my only limitation. So um, that was really fun. It was four courses. But yeah, I absolutely would love to do that. That's definitely 
on my brain. I'm visiting a farm next week um, from a woman I met at one of my events. I overheard her telling somebody, I have this awesome barn, like party space. I think I'd like to have weddings, you know, on the property. And I was like, hey, hi. <laughs> so I'm going to visit that next week. So I think that'll be really exciting. Um, and I can definitely picture something like that there. So we'll see. So this next question comes from Chef Tyler Minnis. He was the previous guest on the podcast. He's over at Wario's Beef and Pork here in Columbus. Uh, he left behind a question for you. Uh, what challenges has the post-pandemic restaurant industry brought up and how have you addressed them? Something that I noticed that changed quite a bit in the industry after the pandemic was more of a push to protect and take care of the staff and the industry and to move away from like the customer's always right kind of mentality. And so, you know, you're seeing service charges to help get health insurance for the staff. Um, you're seeing shorter hours for dinner time and things um, to give staff, you know, more time off. Uh, you know, at Chapman's, again, I thought it was super cool. We kind of eased our way back into things. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, we have to start making money, just open the doors. It was like, what can we handle? What's going to keep everybody excited and happy? What, you know, is going to keep the staff, staff safe? And for me, that's the first time I've seen that happening in this industry. I do wonder how sustainable it is. So I think it's like all these really positive movements um, and really great values that I would love to see continue are popping up, but are they sustainable financially? Are they sustainable when you're super, super busy and serving 400 people a night? How much can you really focus on, you know, the health and happiness of your staff and things? So it's like these great ideas that came out of the pandemic. Can they be executed long-term? I'm really interested to see. What's a question you want to leave behind for the next guest? If you stopped cooking, what would you want to do with your life next? So this next question comes from one of our listeners. Uh, they wrote in, if you could work at any restaurant in the world, what one would it be? It's funny because in my head, I'm thinking of some the best food I've eaten and like wanting to work there. But I'm like, the culture is not good. I wouldn't want to work there because, you know, the chef is known to be a jerk or, you know, oh, the best restaurant in the world, Noma. But do I want to be a little soldier in that army with my tweezers? I feel like, honestly, I don't even know what the restaurant would be because it would be more of like a small town mom and pop kind of spot. You know, I, I would want to work someplace that's really involved with the community and, and the farmers and is has like a warm, inviting kind of atmosphere and where everybody really does care about each other and love each other. And I honestly haven't really seen that yet. I hate to say it. So I guess maybe my own restaurant. So this next set of questions we asked everybody who comes on the podcast. So a nice compare and contrast across all the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your cooking career thus far? Bryce Gilmore from Barley Swine and Odd Duck. I feel like he is somebody who is really living his values. Um, I feel like he has a really amazing vision. He's always so level-headed and so kind. I think he's a really, really good example of what a chef should be and could be. And I'd love to see more of them. 
When we went to Barley Swine, we sat at like their counter and he was there in the kitchen. Most people probably wouldn't do this, but I wound up watching him quite a bit because you just see him kind of standing there and he's just kind of watching everything and somebody will go over here and then this person might need a little help and he just kind of goes over there and then comes back. This person left to go do something and he goes over there and he comes back. Like every movement was like purposeful. He didn't even like communicate to anybody like verbally. It was just like, just constantly kind of moving, seeing what was going on. There was no chaos. There was nothing like that. But it was like, oh, this person's like behind because they have to do like eight of these right now. Like, I'll just go help them. It was fascinating to watch like from that perspective of somebody who kind of knows what's going on versus like a regular person probably wouldn't even care. Yeah, he has this like calming effect. And I was a very much not a calm cook. And I think I had this feeling where I I felt like if I was running behind or really busy, that I had to seem frantic to prove that I cared and had urgency and was going to try to, you know, catch back up. And, and then he would just like grab me by the shoulders and be like, it's okay, calm down. And I'm like, okay, he gave us a feeling of like, you're allowed to make mistakes and you're still respected and cared for and you're still a good cook and you're, you still deserve to be here. A lot of people, it's like, if you make a mistake, they want to just like make you feel so, so terrible about it. And I think that actually causes more problems. Um, because then somebody makes a mistake and then they lie about it because they're afraid to get yelled at. Where with him, you can go to him and be like, hey, this doesn't taste right. I don't know why. Yeah, I'm learning. He's the one that knows everything. He was amazing to work for. What's the one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? It's a tough one between scissors and hands. I use my hands a lot. I'm pretty lo-fi. I'm like, oh, I could throw this in a food processor, but I'll just chop it up or, you know, I'll just get in there with my hands. So probably hands. Restaurant you recommend that isn't your own? Oh my gosh. I'm obsessed with Lupo. I just went to a wedding there and I was blown away. I think I told every single employee how good of a job they did. I think I emailed them and left a Google review. (laughs) I was so blown away. The food was incredible. Yeah, that's a good little spot, tapas. I can get a bunch of different stuff. Everything was seasoned great. The staff was so sweet. Everything was seasoned phenomenally, like fun, bright flavors. It was incredible. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant. So any place that you haven't traveled to yet, but you still want to go. And then any restaurant that you haven't had the chance to dine at, but you still want to get there one day. I would say Southeast Asia. I've never been anywhere in Asia. Working at Chapman's with Matt and Nico, they were both really into Southeast Asian cooking. I realized that that's the best food in the world. I never really considered going there in the past. I don't know if I felt intimidated by like language differences. I don't know why. I, I That seemed like more intimidating to me. But I think now that I've met Matt who lived there and I have some friends who just went to Vietnam and then Nico is Cambodian um, and Thai, I developed a really strong interest about to go there. Bucket list restaurant... It's actually, it's not that impressive. You know, I mean, I'm sure everybody wants to go to like a three Michelin star restaurant, but there is a restaurant in New York City called Olmstead. I had a reservation there, was really excited about going. And then I last minute got invited to stay at um, Blue Hill at Stone Barns by Dan Barber. <laughs> we were doing a tour and he found out we were cooks. 
and he really, really treated us like VIP, which was insane. Um, so we were like, oh, we'll take the $100 canceled reservation charge from Olmstead and we're going up to Blue Hill. But to this day, I see Olmstead and I'm like, I, do, I really want to go there. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? So at Odd Duck, we had this enormous um, wood fire grill. It was probably five feet wide by two or three feet deep. And then it had two big metal shelves on top of it for resting and stuff. And it gets real greasy on the shelves. And I wasn't working the grill station, but the shelves all caught on fire. Six foot tall, flaming grill, like just totally on fire. It was insane. I think I blacked out. I was so scared. Somebody knew what to do and they took care of it. But I usually kind of just scream and jump up and down. So (laughs) I'm not the one to put out the fire. Food or drink guilty pleasures or anything fast food, candy that you know is unhealthy, but uh, you just can't help it. Pepperoni pizza. (laughs) I just got my um, blood work done and my cholesterol is getting a little high. So I told my partner, we have to leave the pepperoni off sometimes. (laughs) Maybe maybe mushrooms sometimes. I love pepperoni. Um, Drinks. I do like a Diet Coke sometimes. I know they're so bad, but lime juice. I love it. Favorite Instagram account you follow? The Black Forager. Favorite dish thing you ever cooked, created? You can point to this dish when looking back on your career and it's kind of your aha moment. Like you knew you could be a professional chef. I had a project in culinary school where you had to come up with a restaurant idea and make a menu and a, you know, the theme and all those things. And then you made one dish from your restaurant. Um, and I put a lot of effort into it. Mine was like, it was very much a culinary school, uh, parsnip puree with seared sea scallops, pomegranate seeds, bacon, fried kale, and like, I think pickled cauliflower or something. Um, and then like some sort of gastric. It was a little overcomplicated, but you know, I think pretty creative for a culinary student. I put, I practiced it a few times before I did it and everything. And then when I presented it in school, um, I got by far the best feedback. And the teacher pulled me aside and was like, you could charge $40 for that at a restaurant, you know, like that's restaurant ready. Amazing. And so I think that was like, okay, maybe I am kind of like a little better than average. I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan, but not everybody is or was. Uh, If you were, is there a moment episode scene uh, that stands out to you about him that you still remember? Or if you weren't, is there anybody else who was on TV, uh, an Emerald, a Guy Fieri, Julia Child, whatever that uh, you kind of gravitated towards, you know, coming up? Growing up, I really liked Ina Garden, and I still call her Auntie Ina. Um, She's not my aunt or aunt, and I don't say aunt about anybody else. (laughs) I love her. But yeah, no, Anthony Bourdain, incredible. Um, I read Kitchen Confidential, you know, my first year cooking, and absolutely love him. Brilliant. I think now, looking back, reading it in a way... I don't want to say hurt me, but I think I fell into that like, oh, you have to be this like badass. Like I'm, I used to, there's a quote in the book where he says, don't touch my dick, don't touch my knife. Um, and I would say it to everybody and I would be like, shut up. I definitely like really leaned into that like hard, badass cook, line cook mentality. Um, and I've definitely like moved away from, I think it taught me some things about being tough and all those things. But I think now I'm like, okay, I can take some some pieces of that and still be me and still be sensitive and nice and those things. But I mean, yeah, Anthony Bourdain. I'm not a big celebrity chef kind of person though. 
Where can people find you? Social media, website, plug everything. Okay. So on Instagram, it's ohio.carry.cooks. I have a website, carryyoungcooks.com. Yeah. Both of those have all the contact information, email. So I'm pretty good at staying up on texts and emails, not so much voicemails. Yeah. And if someone wants to get in touch with you about catering or supper club, dinner party thing, just reach out through the website or shoot you a DM. What's the best way to do that? DM, text message, email, any of that. So let me know. Word of mouth is, is my favorite too. I have so many awesome clients heard of me from somebody else and been great. This is awesome. Definitely wanted to kind of have you on the podcast since you know you were at the Chapman's days, then off doing kind of your own thing. And more people are headed that way. You know, I mean, we've had a handful of people on the podcast so far that are doing their private chef thing. Seems to be going really well for everybody. So I think once you kind of build that client base, I think it kind of really gets the ball rolling. So food looks delicious. I've seen it on Instagram too as well. So uh, looking forward to whenever there's another pop-up or if we have some event uh, one day, whenever we get done renovating uh, this place, uh, looking forward to, to trying it firsthand more than uh, the things that you contributed uh, to the menu at Chapman's. Cool. Thank you. It was fun to talk. A big thanks again to Carrie for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of her evening. Always grateful for anybody that's able to find the time to jump on a microphone and chat with us about their career and where they've been, where they're headed, you know, what they're doing now and everything. So Carrie, somebody who I had on, you know, our invite list for a little while, but wanted to make sure that, you know, once she kind of transitioned out of restaurants, um, that she had some time to as well before we reached out to her and try to get something set up. And that's what we did. And it was an awesome conversation, super informative about the industry and different parts of the industry and different states and everything too as well. And then also just the food food scene in Columbus, being a woman in the kitchen, which we didn't touch on too much. I feel like sometimes I try to avoid that a little bit just because it's something that comes up in a lot of interviews. I do think it's important, but it can get a little formulaic or kind of fall on deaf ears if it's the same talking points like over and over for people to hear. So we try and switch it up, different questions and stuff like that, and kind of approach subjects from a different point of view a little bit. And I think it also gives the chance for better answers to those questions from whoever our guest is. And Carrie did an amazing job kind of explaining, you know, everything she's been through and and what she kind of sees the path forward for not just herself but the industry too as well so again you can follow her on instagram it's at carrie y-o-i-n-g and also at ohio.carrie.cooks reach out to her if you're interested in setting something up i think she's got a lot of stuff probably already in the works for the holiday season but reach out to her she'll let you know about availability pricing kind of go through all the detail size of your party uh, events she does private dinner parties uh, she has some cooking class stuff she does weddings catering events all that kind of stuff so reach out to her and uh, if you're interested in what she's able to put together for you if it's uh, something that you know you'd be interested in experiencing for yourself firsthand but That is it for this episode. More great stuff on the way. Appreciate everybody listening. Uh, Again, follow us on Instagram at SpoonMob. Check out our website, SpoonMob.com, and make sure to follow the podcast wherever you get your podcast from. Just click the follow button so all new episodes hit your feed as soon as they release. But that's it. Like I said, appreciate everybody for listening. We got more cool stuff for you coming up. Super excited for some of the future guests too as well. We've had a bunch of great guests so far and we're just keeping it rolling. Keep helping spread the word. Really appreciate that. And uh, feel free to write in questions, comments, feedback through the contact page on the website or email us directly, spoonmob at yahoo.com. Or you can even DM us on IG. Um, We'll respond to that. And I check that pretty frequently. 
And also, you know, even if we're not currently connected, it'll fall into another folder, but I check that folder. So pretty up to date on the rules of how Instagram operates until they change everything. But uh, that's it.